choir, beautiful song by Gloria Gaither. I love that message. Hey, it's time for Children's Church. And so if you're in pre-K through the fifth grade, adios, buckaroos. And uh, we'll see you all a little bit later. For those of you hanging around in here, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians this morning. And so would you go ahead and open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4, please. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, let me encourage you to use one of those Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. And your shortcut to find the passage in that pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1038. So that's page 1038 in your pew Bible. And uh, this morning we're in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. Uh, I'm excited about our upcoming 75th anniversary. Uh, here are some celebrities that also share a birth year uh, with South Shore Baptist Church, turning 75 this year. Uh, rock legend Alice Cooper, soul and funk legend Rick James, actress Rhea Perlman, James Taylor, Billy Crystal, Al Gore, Massachusetts' own Steven Tyler. Also turning 75 this year, NASCAR and Velcro. It was a good year, 1948. So we're in a sermon series in which we are reflecting on our membership covenant in light of our upcoming anniversary. Our membership covenant is made up of eight different commitments that the members of our church make to the Lord and to each other. Uh, we're, we're saying these are the kinds of people we want to be and become. Uh, in the Lord, and this is how we're going to live with each other uh, in this world while we wait on the return of Christ. And so far, we've looked at our commitments to the Bible, our commitment to gather for worship, our commitment to serve the church and each other, and today we're spending time with our fourth commitment, and that commitment looks like this. It reads as follows, by God's grace, we will walk together in love. We will care for each other, bear one another's burdens, and pray for each other. We will strive to keep the unity of the Spirit by pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness, resisting opportunities for gossip and division, and welcoming one another's loving correction. If I had to choose one word to sum up this commitment, it would be the word care. Uh, what's the difference between our commitment to serve that we studied last week and our commitment to care as detailed in this commitment? Well, certainly there's overlap in the two ideas of serving and caring, but here's the difference as I'm approaching it this morning. Serving focuses on how we use our things to meet the needs of others, but caring focuses on our affections for other people. Serving is how we meet needs. Caring is the stuff of relationships. Uh, it's very possible to serve someone without caring for them. And then it's a twisted sort of care that says, I love you, but then doesn't serve a person. We want to be people who serve and care at the same time. We want to be a church that serves well and cares well. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32, teaches us what caring for each other looks like. And Ephesians 4 teaches us that caring is harder than serving. It's easier to mow a yard than to grant forgiveness. It's easier to bake a casserole than to restrain our speech. 
But it's as important as ever that we strive to be the kind of church, to have the kind of homes, to be the kind of people who care well for each other as evidenced by healthy, Christ-exalting relationships. And so my goal today is to raise your level of commitment to right relationships with your fellow believers and with all of those in your life. You see, Paul's instructions here in Ephesians 4 are specifically related to life in the local church, but their application goes beyond the church to our homes, to our workplaces, to our play places, to every place we find ourselves. And so while this certainly has application first and foremost in the church, it has impacts on our marriages, on our parenting, on our grandparenting, on the kind of people we are in every sphere of life. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul explains what caring for each other looks like. And I want you to hear what Paul has to say. Follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Paul writes this. It says, therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. This is a poignant segment of teaching to a particular historical context that was full of division. If you know a little bit about the context in which this letter was written, it's written to a church in the city of Ephesus that's made up largely of two different groups of Christian people. It's made up of Christians that come from Jewish backgrounds and Christians who come from non-Jewish backgrounds. And those two groups normally don't intermingle. The Jewish and the non-Jewish groups don't normally intermingle, but because of their faith in Christ, all of a sudden you have one church, one body made out of these two groups. And so Paul is fighting for unity in the church in this letter. 
It's six chapters long, the way we have it divided. The first three chapters are very theological. And, and Paul describes the impact of the gospel, how we are saved, and why we are saved by faith in Christ. And then the last half of the letter, the last three chapters, uh, are practical. Now, since we're saved this way, this is how we live with each other. This is boots-on-the-ground type of Christianity, how from faith in Christ, he makes one body out of these two groups and brings us together. It's a letter for unity and togetherness by our common faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's poignant for us as well for this very same reason. We may not have as well-defined groups within our church, but still we are a people divided by any number of categories. And yet by our faith in Christ, Paul is teaching us how we care for each other, how we come together as one body. So what does it look like for Christians to care for each other? I don't mean care in the way the world might define care. I mean care in a way that reflects Christ, that looks like the cross, that has the power of resurrection in it. What does Christian care for one another look like? And in this passage, Paul gives us two descriptions of Christian care. The first is this, Christian care is empowered by the gospel. It's empowered by the gospel. How do we do this? Uh, how do we have the strength to do it? What model do we follow? The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us the power to care for each other in this way. So the first part of this passage, verses 17 to 24, is a singular thought. It's a long sentence, but it's one thought in which Paul identifies the power behind our ability to care for each other properly. So Paul doesn't just tell us what to do. He doesn't just... Uh, scribble down on pen and paper, don't lie, don't steal, don't do bad things, only do good things. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to start with the gospel and make sure that we remember who we were and who we are by our faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is the regular pattern of things in the Bible. Paul follows a pattern that goes all the way back to the early Old Testament where God delivers before he demands. The Bible is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's the story of God's deliverance of his people, a gracious deliverance that's followed by instructions for how sinful people live with a holy God. So this pattern of deliverance and demand is seen uh, in the book of Exodus at the Red Sea. Israel is delivered, and then at Mount Sinai, God gives the demands of the law. Uh, that same pattern is seen in the return from exile, Kevin read this morning from Ezra chapter 3. So you have deliverance from exile followed by the demands of the renewed covenant. We even see this pattern in the ministry and life of Jesus. He delivered the woman caught in adultery from certain execution before he gave her the demand, go and sin no more. If you want to raise your Bible study to a different level, look for that pattern where you read and where you study. Deliverance is followed by demand. He rescues us, and then he gives us these requirements for how we live with our God. And so that's what Paul does here. He begins by reminding the Ephesian Christians of who they were before their salvation. And so look at what he says to them, in, starting in verse 17. He says, I say this and testify in the Lord you should no longer live as Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. 
darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. So Paul's describing here the life without Christ. He's not taking cheap shots at non-believers. He's reminding the Ephesian Christians, this is who you were, religious or irreligious, before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Without Christ, our thinking is futile. Our understanding is dark. We were ignorant, hard-hearted, and calloused, given over to every kind of impurity. And that's a ravenous way of life that consumes people rather than cares for them. Now, is Paul saying here that non-believers are incapable of caring for other people? That's not what he's saying. But what he is articulating is a truth that goes back to the Garden of Eden. Sin is a relationship destroyer. Sin created enmity between Adam and Eve. Sin led Cain to murder his brother Abel. As sinners ourselves, we carry with us the same potential to damage and destroy other people. And we would still be powerless to that sin except for our experience of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 20. He describes the new life we have by faith in Christ. He says, that's not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus to take off your former way of life. The old self that's corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. So as someone who knows Jesus, you, you take off your former way of life and you're renewed in the spirit of your minds. It sounds an awful lot like something Paul wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 2, where he said, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed, but be renewed. Here in Ephesians 4, don't be corrupted, but be renewed. And the reason we can have renewed minds is because by faith in Christ, we're free from the power and penalty of sin. In Christ, we're dead to our old selves, and we've been raised to new life in Him. Because of Jesus, we now live these new lives in the likeness of God. In verse 24, that's what Paul tells us. You, you, you now live in the likeness of God. We look like Him. We resemble Him when we live in this way. And so the care we show to each other isn't care according to the world's definition of care. It's not care according to the definition given by the most caring human ever. It's care that looks like the cross, defined by God taking on flesh and laying down his life for us. It's care in that God the Son came to us and bore our sin. That's what care looks like. And so the gospel informs our understanding of caring for each other. And the church looks like God when we care for each other the way God cares for us. So, so do you see the way that our experience of the gospel transforms us from people who consume others to people who truly care for each other in Christ-like ways? Look, Jesus is our power to care for each other. And Jesus is our freedom from destroying each other. And Jesus is the standard by which we care for each other. A lie the devil wants you to believe today and every day 
is that with enough effort, you can do the law without reliance on Jesus Christ. He wants you to read Ephesians 4 and think, I don't need Jesus. I just care for people. How hard is that? I'll just do the right thing. I don't need Jesus for that. And only people with darkened understanding and hard, calloused hearts would believe that a human being can care without Christ. Is that you this morning? Are you someone that, that Paul described a person in the past tense, you were this type of person, but you might be that kind of person right now. And here's where you might bristle and say, Cody, are you saying, I didn't come to church today to be called hard-hearted, calloused, ignorant, darkened. Is that what you, that doesn't sound very caring. Is it uncaring when the doctor gives the accurate diagnosis? Is it uncaring when the parent steers the child away from certain self-harm? Sometimes care comes with a hard truth, but there's grace in that hard truth. There is love in that hard truth. And here's God's grace to you this morning that says to you, apart from Christ, your heart is messed up. And your eternity is dark without Christ. But because you are loved, sinner that you are, hard-hearted as you are, calloused as you are, you are loved by your Creator so much that He made a way for you to be made whole through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus died in your place for your sin. You didn't ask Him to do that. You didn't know you needed Him to do that. But He did that for you because He loves you. He wants to heal all the brokenness, forgive all the sins so that you can be made whole in your relationship with your Creator. Jesus is the only one who could do what He's done for us. No one else can do it. You can't do enough law on your own to accomplish what Jesus has done for you at the cross. And so he died on the cross in your place for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead. His promise to you is this, if you will turn from your darkness into his light, if you will turn from self-reliance and turn to trust in him, you will be saved, you will be forgiven, the calluses removed, your heart softened. You are his child forever and ever that's God's love and grace to you today in giving you that hard truth. It is the greatest care that God would say, come home. Come to me. I love you. You're my child. It's time to come home. The gospel of Jesus Christ empowers us to care for each other in a way that resembles the God of heaven, the God of our salvation. So, the gospel is put before us. This is how we were delivered. This is how we've been cared for by God. This gives us power, strength, might, the standard by which we care for each other. But the second way Paul describes Christian care in this passage, in this final paragraph, is Christian care is the gospel at work. It's empowered by the gospel, but also Christian care is the gospel at work. So it's boots on the ground type of living. There's a real practicality to what Paul gives us. He's, he's spoken of our deliverance, and now he speaks of the demand. He told us who we are, and now he tells us how we live. 
This final paragraph, verses 25 through 32, is where Paul gets into the specifics about what care looks like. And so here's what he does. He gives us a list of commands, and with each command comes a motivation or an alternative for that command. The commands are all negative. So I, I've tried to put this in a, a way that might make sense visually. So let me show you the commands that Paul gives us. There's five of them, and they're all do not statements, right? Don't lie. Don't let anger linger. Don't steal. Don't hurt with your words. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. This is what Christian care looks like in this way. Now, with those do not statements comes motivations. He doesn't just wag the finger and say, don't do that. He helps us understand what the alternative is. And so here's the motivations that come with each one. With don't lie, he gives us the encouragement we shouldn't lie to each other because we're all members of one body. With don't let anger linger. We're not supposed to do that because if we do so, we give the devil a foothold. We're not supposed to steal. Why? Because we're supposed to give to each other, to let, have something to give to another person in need. Uh, we're, we're not supposed to hurt people with our words. Why? Uh, so that we can speak grace for their benefit. And, and we're not supposed to grieve the Holy Spirit. Why? Because He sealed and, and has saved you for the day of redemption to come. So in each of these commands comes this motivation. I, I, this may not be the best way to picture this or to visualize this, um, but I hope it communicates the idea to you so you can see what Paul's doing in this paragraph. So why should we live this way? Why should we care in this Christ-like way? Well, it's because of the impact it has on the lives of the people we live with. Paul isn't just nitpicking random sins here. What he's doing is rejecting those behaviors that destroy community, and he's appealing for behaviors that build community. Don't be this kind of person that consumes the people in your life, but instead be this Christ-like kind of person who builds people up, who strengthens a community in the likeness of Christ. You see, Christian living is rooted in relationships with other people, and that is terrifying because we all know what it's like to be hurt by people. Right? This is the audience participation part of the program. I'm going to ask you for a show of hands. And can, can I just tell you, it's a major pet peeve of mine whenever a preacher says, raise your hands if. I, or, or when the preacher says, turn to your neighbor and say, I... I don't like it. And the next time we have a visiting pastor that does that, don't look at me. Just know that inside, a little hole is opening up in my heart. But I'll, all right, so I'm going to ask you a question, ask you to raise your hand if this is true of you. All right, turn to your neighbor and say it's going to be okay. All right, good job. All right. Hey, uh, raise your hand if you've ever been lied to. Yeah. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever had someone angry at you. Raise your hand if you've ever held on to anger for a long time. Yeah. Raise your hand if you've ever been stolen from. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever been hurt by someone else's words. Look, our lives are full of repeated instances of letdowns and fractured relationships. And, and as such, we've become accustomed to this sort of dysfunction in our relationships. However, 
because of our faith in Christ, we're called to a new way of being in relationship with each other. And this way brings glory to God. And so let's, let's consider these commands that Paul has given us. All right, first of all, verse 25, therefore put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another. Are you aware of how much you lie on a pretty regular basis? You may be a fairly truthful person, but we're pretty accustomed to lying in certain settings. Uh, you lie to bosses who ask you why you were late. You lie to the police officer that asks if you knew what the speed limit was. Uh, you lie to the persistent neighbor who keeps asking if you're free for dinner. You lie to the child who asks how much farther. You lie to the person who may have asked you this morning, how are you doing? And look, how twisted are we that we feel like we have to lie in our relationships in order to keep them healthy? Or we feel like lying is a normal social construct. It's just what's expected. It's what you do. When they ask how you're doing, they don't really want to know how you're doing. So you make something up just to fill the, the emptiness. We... We have convinced ourselves that lying is not just acceptable, but it's proper for keeping relationships in balance. And, and you say, oh, Cody, it's just a, a white lie. What are we talking about? A, a white lie. What are we talking about? How twisted have we become that we make room for deception in our lives and consider ourselves mature and healthy in relationship? Has Christ ever lied to you? Even a white lie? Well, no. So then why would we lie to each other? He has given us truth. We got to live in that truth. So don't lie. Speak truth. If Scripture calls Satan a liar and the father of all lies, then I don't want anything to do with lying. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. When Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, it, it's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. He, he's telling us our anger must not endure. He's not telling us it's sinful to go to bed angry, though I know there are some couples who have said, we're, we're, we're not going to go to bed until we've resolved the conflict. I admire that. But listen, at nighttime, I am quite sleepy. I'm not at my uh, conflict-resolving best at that time. Maybe you aren't either. But, the, but Paul's point here is we, we cannot allow anger to live unresolved. It will fester in us. It will explode in other sinful, unhealthy ways. Peace at all costs is not the resolution of anger. Peace at all costs just means we stuff the conflict, we eat the conflict, and eventually it corrodes us from the inside out. It's not a sin to be angry. There is such a thing as holy anger, righteous anger. What we do with our anger is where sin enters the equation. Do you keep score? I mean, I love to keep score. I'm going to take this little hurt, I'm going to stash it away, I'm going to hold it in my angry back pocket until I can whew, bring it out and just hit you with it one day. That's the kind of pastor you have. We keep score. We hold on to that anger. But as Christ held on to his anger towards you, his wrath on your sin, 
Is he waiting to, to just blindside you with all your failures and disappointments? That's not how Christ has loved you. We can't love each other that way either. It's improper for Christians to hold on to anger towards each other. And we're talking to, listen, we're not talking about just the small infractions of life where, you know, someone cuts you off. I know we're dealing with soul-deep hurt. Do not give the devil a foothold. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Your anger is like Satan's Trojan horse. And he is waiting to destroy you with it. And when we allow anger to live unchecked and unresolved in our relationships with each other, we are consuming, we are not caring for each other. Do not give the devil a foothold. We want to think that the devil works in all these spooky sort of <laughs> types of ways. Your anger is where he abides. Brothers and sisters, be aware of his presence in your anger. Do not give him a place to live in your frustrations. We have to resolve it. Verse 28, Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so he has something to share with anyone in need. One writer summarized it this way, the thief has become a philanthropist. This verse shows us the other orientation of the new life in contrast to the self-centeredness of the old life. Now look at it, just the most basic level, the Bible is consistent regarding theft. Thou shall not do it. Don't steal from your employer. Don't steal from your neighbor. Don't use someone else's password for a streaming service you aren't paying for. Oh man, you shouldn't have come to church today. Oh, we are getting in it this morning. Busby, seriously, just simmer down. What are you talking? It's just... Who cares? It's just a password. Uh, has Christ stolen from you anything? Has he given you everything? Look, let's, let's be consistent in our Christ-like character inside. When we steal from each other, when we view people as opportunities to get from them rather than to give to them, we're not living in the way Christ has called us to live. We're not caring the way he's cared for us. It, it, and look, if, if, we just, if we just boil this down to just, just theft, look, it, here's where it might make more sense. If you position yourself around people just for what you can get from them, there's a theft of relationship there. There's a duplicity that is not consistent with Christian integrity. And so instead, we position ourselves around people to give, to be generous, to lay down our stuff for their good. Verse 29, no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need, so it gives grace to those who hear. Foul language, it's a broad umbrella. It's not just swear words, vulgarity, though that certainly works there. And, uh, and here's, I mean, I just... I love all of our silly rationalizations or the thought that Christian maturity is going to look like vulgarity in our speech. Uh, or, or so we've got a list of approved Christian swear words <laughs> as opposed to unapproved Christian swear words. Or here's the dirty words we'll say, but the dirty words we won't say. Or what. Look, no foul language. 
it's not just vulgarity, that's part of it, but foul language is, is anything that brings wrath, anger, spite, criticism, hurt to the person who hears your words. You may not have said a swear word since 1972, but your language is as foul as ever if your words are not grace, but they're harsh. The parent who just rips into their kid, the spouse who rips into the spouse, the driver who rips into the other driver, the person who tears into the kid at the drive through window, there's something wrong with that speech. And brothers and sisters, if your temper is such that your speech is unrestrained, hear the word of the Lord this morning. Has Christ ever spoken to you that way? Has he ever spoken to you to berate you, to beat you down, to win the fight? His words have been grace to you, and so our words to each other must also be grace. Verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You're sealed with him for the day of redemption. Look, this thought of not grieving the Holy Spirit, something we don't think about a lot, but we need to believe what Paul says here, that the Holy Spirit can be grieved in a manner that is appropriate to his deity. He cannot stand the presence of sin. He hates it when we, his dwelling place, engage in sin. And so when we act and speak destructively to the people in our lives, we cause grief to God the Holy Spirit. His grief is not the exact same as ours, right? It's it's appropriate to his deity. The Holy Spirit cannot be paralyzed by grief. His grief is always holy. It's undefiled by sin or fear or any flaw that comes with our experience of grief. And why is it that our sin against each other causes the Holy Spirit such grief? I think the key is in understanding the last line of verse 30. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. So when our citizenship is in heaven, but we treat people in hellish ways, it grieves God. But when we're speaking truth, resolving anger, sharing with those in need, building others up with our words, then we are bringing glory and not grief to God the Holy Spirit. Now, to be sure, verse 30 is not just one bullet point in a list of five. The grief of the Holy Spirit is not just another list of wrongdoings on a list of many wrongdoings. It is the result of all of this sin, all of this sin against each other. So a, we couldn't, a person could not say, um, well, I may have lied, but at least I didn't grieve the Holy Spirit. You with me? When we sin against each other, grief is, is what's caused. Now, someone might say here, well, he, I must always make God sad then because I'm just a train wreck. That, again, this is not what Paul is saying here, that you're a perpetual disappointment to our God of grace and compassion and mercy and kindness and love. He's for you. But we've got to understand the impact of our sins against each other on the God who has bound us, binded us together for him and for the church. Finally, in the last two verses, Paul does what he often does. He gets really broad with his instructions. Verse 31, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, what? Shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. 
Paul just sort of, with one sweep, just says every way in which we consume each other, be done with it. The church is to be a place where our relationships are free of all of these destructive behaviors. Now notice Paul doesn't say remove disagreements. We're going to have disagreements. But in those disagreements, we mustn't destroy each other. Instead, we are to do what verse 32 says, to be kind compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Paul could have told us to do anything and we would have been okay with it. But forgiving each other? That's really hard. It's really hard to forgive people that have hurt you. Forgiveness is a complicated matter, to be sure. And it may be worth a conversation after this, and I'm going to point you To our resident expert on this issue, that's Pastor Steve Grissom, who taught two packed classes back-to-back last year on this topic because it is such a sensitive and pressing issue that we need guidance and help with. But brothers and sisters, has Christ forgiven you of every sin? Anything that he's, he's not forgiving you for? No. He has forgiven you freely, and so it is possible and it is right that we would find a way to forgive each other and all those who have wronged us. We've got to care for each other, not as the world cares, but as Christ has cared for us. And so the gospel transforms our relationships. Our experience of Christ has taken us from relational destruction that started first in the garden and allows us to live in relational wholeness of that final garden. And so the gospel gives us the power to care for each other and it teaches us the practice of caring for each other. That's what Paul's given us this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. All of this sounds really good in theory, but it's messy in real life. And so you might push back and say, look, my situation's different, my pain's especially deep, and look, I know these can be challenging instructions, but consider this, what has God done for you and in you? Rather than looking at the enormity of the challenge of your situation, I, I want you to look at the enormity of God's demonstrated love to you. And in the first two chapters of Ephesians, Paul gives us these descriptions of God's incredible love for you. Before he gives any command, he gives two full chapters of God's lavish love. I just just want you to hear and see what God's love for you is like from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. He blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. 1 4, he chose us. 1 5, he predestined us to be adopted as his children. 1 6, he has freely given us grace. 1 7, he has redeemed us. 1 8, he lavished on us all wisdom and understanding. 1 9, he made known the mystery of his will. 1 13, we were included in Christ. 2 5, God made us alive in Christ. 2 6, God raised us up with Christ. 2 8, He saved us by grace. 2.10, we are God's workmanship. 2.13, we have been brought near to God through Christ. 2.14, he is our peace. 2.19, we are citizens in God's kingdom. 2.22, we are his dwelling place. And if God loves us in this way, and if God the Holy Spirit dwells in us and among us, 
than what we've talked about today is wonderfully possible if we will believe God, if we will obey, if we will be transformed by our experience of Christ and the gospel. And it's, it's so interesting to me that, that today we have more access to more people than anyone has ever had in the history of our planet. You've received a phone call during this worship service or text messages, I'm sure of it. Or just with two pushes, uh, a push of two buttons on your phone, you could be face-to-face with someone on the other side of the planet. We have such incredible access to people, and yet we are more alone, more isolated, more anxious than ever. Why? Because whether we have technology or not, we are still broken, messed up, hurting people. But there's a solution. You see, there's a place where people speak the truth and not lies. And there's a place where people pursue peace and refuse anger. And there's a place where people give rather than steal. There's a place where people speak grace and not wrath. There's a place where people are kind and compassionate and forgiving. A place where it is on earth as it will be in heaven. The church of Christ is that place. And we are those people. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your care to us, demonstrated, a love shown, a salvation that was won by the giving of body and the shedding of blood for us. Thank you for rescuing us from the power of our sin and the penalty of our sin, holding us for the day where we're free from the presence of sin. We long for that day. And so on this day, Father, help us to love each other the way you've loved us. For South Shore Baptist Church, Lord, let us be a people who take serious your word to us and love each other in this way. Help us in our unbelief, in all the places where we feel like our anger is unique or our hurt is unique or these things can't be healed or overcome, God, I pray that you would give new hope to struggling marriages today. If Christ is alive, hope is never gone. Lord, today, do a healing work in our homes. Father, help us to care for each other, for the children you've given us, the neighbors you've given us, for the brothers and sisters we worship alongside. Let the care of Christ overflow in our relationships to each other so that you would be glorified and the world would see and come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The hope of the Holy Spirit. So let's respond to this message from the word of the Lord by singing this prayer. Would you please stand as we sing?
Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. I pray that as we go, each of us would take time to meditate and reflect on what it means to care for one another, care for this church, and care deeply for the Lord and His Word. Uh, if you're looking to be able to pray this morning, uh, feel, free, feel free to grab myself, Pastor Cody, Pastor Steve, who's here, uh, a member of our prayer team. They'd love to pray with you this morning, and we thank you for being a generous church. You can always give of your tithes and offerings in the black boxes just outside the door, and remember, you can drop a prayer card or your Connect card there as well. Uh, but as we go this morning, as we prepare to go, would you reread with me the words from our covenant that Cody referenced this morning? They're on the screen here, so would you read with me? By God's grace, we will walk together in love. We will care for each other, bear one another's burdens, and pray for each other. We will strive to keep the unity of the Spirit by pursuing reconciliation and forgiveness, resisting opportunities for gossip and division, and welcoming one another's loving correction. May we go this morning with those words in mind. Amen. Amen.